And good morning, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, from the high deserts of New Mexico. Remember someone used to say that a lot? Well, we can say it in all veracity, the high deserts. North of Albuquerque, in the middle of literally nowhere, with a gorgeous New Mexican night. We're going to have a lot of fun tonight and actually learn some things, because we are incredibly fortunate to have as our guest Jim Goodall. Now, he's no relation to the guy that does, you know, uh, Animal Planet or Wild Kingdom or whatever. This is, that's another Jim Goodall. But the guy we got tonight, I mean, in the, in the media biz, they talk about gets. You know, you get this guest, you get that guest, someone who's got big name and all this. We have a get tonight, and it's um, Jim Goodall. So before we get to that, though, let me give you some hot new news, because we do news at the top of the show every night. Right now... If you simulcast, if you simul screen on your computer, I don't know whether you can do that on a smartphone. I never tried. But you want to call up NASA.com side by side on your computer screen because you've got the other side of Midnight.com on one side and NASA.com on the other. There is a live telecast from 250 miles in space, the International Space Station. Because they are moving, the Russians are moving their Soyuz 13 spacecraft from one docking port around to the other side of the space station, the other docking port, to make room for a second attempt tomorrow night at about this time. Of course, we won't be on the air because it's Monday night. But they're going to try to redock the Soyuz MS-14 spacecraft, which has been kind of lollygagging around about 100 meters out, waiting for the automatic um, docking system to be repaired. And I have a feeling the reason they're moving one of the spacecraft from one port to the other is because the Soyuz spacecraft that are manned are under manual control. This incoming spacecraft, a Soyuz you know, MS-14, which has the full-size human-scale robot Fedor, that's an acronym, and I'm not going to try to remember what it stands for, but it's a full-scale human-sized robot that the Russians have built that they're sending to the space station for the next several months to test out whether robots really can help the crew uh, do various things in the space station. AI is taking over. Remember our discussion last night? Are we in an AI simulation? Well, Upstairs right now, the uh, crew, which had to actually suit up and get into the Soyuz 13 and go through all the launch preparations over the last couple, three hours, they are supposed to, probably at about uh, an hour ago, they supposed to have undocked or prepared to undock. I'm not quite sure where uh, this is because uh, we've been getting ready for this show. So if you want to call up NASA.com on one side of your screen, Turn down the sound, because you don't need the sound, but the visual should be very spectacular as a kind of a backdrop to what um, we're going to be talking about with my guest tonight, Mr. James Goodall. And if you want to go to the other side of midnight.com and click on tonight's banner, which is about the, quote, invasion of Area 51, and that will take you to Jim's guest page. Scroll down, and under Radio with Pictures, that first item is all about the description of the new plan that the Russians have for docking the Soyuz at the space station tomorrow night after a very unexpected abort a couple of days ago, 
which they think now they pinpointed to a broken amplifier um, at one of these docking ports. So they're switching spacecraft to the other port, and they'll be able to hopefully tomorrow night bring in the robot in his own little Soyuz MS-14 spacecraft. No live crew members, just a robot. wonder what he's thinking out there. Anyway, item number two. We're going to be talking tonight extensively about Area 51. There's been more misinformation and disinformation and non-information about this piece of government-owned real estate probably than any other piece of real estate on the planet. We have the guy with us tonight who can correct the misinformation, give you some remarkable behind-the-scenes first-person reporting as to what really goes on there, some of the really spectacular things. And then we're going to get into some of the more, shall we say, speculative things, like spacecraft associated with the secret space program. So item number two is a Time Magazine article a few weeks ago, which described the idea, which first showed up on uh, Twitter uh, a few weeks ago in June. Now, Tim Saunders told me a couple nights ago that the real originator of the idea of storming Area 51 with thousands and thousands of people invading Area 51 to see if there are aliens there actually is um, the brainchild of Heather Wade, who you might remember is the gal who took over when Art Bell resigned uh, unceremoniously a couple of years ago. And of course now he's, he's gone. So she's by her lonesome broadcasting. I don't know her schedule, but apparently like a year or so ago, she was the first one, according to Tim, who's a reliable source to come up with the idea, but there's a new guy. In fact, let me, uh, let me give you his name. Um, because it's kind of important. I like to get attributions. His name is Matty Roberts. And apparently, he says that his idea for the original event was entirely satirical. But it got over 2 million Facebook users going. And another 1.5 million interested. So what he's done now, and what you want to do is you want to go back to um, uh, Radio Pictures Scroll down to, well, skip three, go to four. This is the latest Time Magazine article. This is published, uh, you know, a couple, three days ago, actually on the 15th. It says, it says in the top line, instead of going through the Area 51 raid in September, it looks like the creator of the Storm Area 51 Facebook event plans to hold a party in a town, little town just outside um, which, of course, is the well-known town of Rachel, Nevada. And they're going to party day and night for several days, uh, apparently across the weekend of the 20th of this mo- uh, next month of September. It's still August, still August, yes, yes. And uh, the town is not happy. Um, if you read that story, you'll see that the, I mean, the town consists of 98 people. Yes, you heard that right, 98 people. Not 99, not 100, 98 people, located about two hours outside of Las Vegas, sits near the midpoint of Nevada on State Route 375, a.k.a. the Extraterrestrial Highway. And the planners of this event, which they're listing as Alien Stock, 
echoes of, you know, 50 years ago, Woodstock, anyone? Um, anyway, read that whole whole uh, story. It's kind of an up to up to date thingy. Now, one interesting wrinkle in all this is that our guest tonight, Jim Goodall, is going to be sitting there, maybe in Rachel, maybe just outside the gates of Area 51, with another friend of ours, uh, George Knapp, who is a major television uh, personality out of uh, Las Vegas, and they're going to be doing live television and live internet streaming. Of whoever shows up. This could be interesting. And the good news is I don't think anybody's going to get shot because um, they're not going to storm the gates. I don't think they would have been shot anyway. I mean, that would be really, really bad for this administration. Uh, oh, my God. I mean, if they're worried about Hong Kong on a Tiananmen Square, too, can you imagine if an American citizen was shot down by rent cops outside of Area 51 to, quote, guard the security? Uh, would not play well in the coming election. So I don't think that's going to take place, luckily. But I do think some very interesting things could take place, and we're going to talk with Jim about that as the uh, morning and the evening progresses. One last item, item number five, and we're going to talk about this later on in the program because I've got some, some insights and new news. Again, you know the mainstream makes absolutely no effort to investigate anything deeper when stories come up about the president than it's another stupid idea. If you look at item number five, Trump suggests as the headline, nuking hurricanes to stop them from hitting America. And of course, the entire report is, oh, this is a crazy, dumb, idiotic, absolutely insane idea. Actually, it's not as we will discuss sometime during the morning. In fact, if uh, during the third hour, we're going to open the phone lines, of course, for your questions, your comments, your perceptions. If someone wants to ask me specifics in that third hour, because I don't want to take a lot of time away from Jim in the, in the first two hours, ask me about why this is not a, a dumb idea, even though the mainstream physicists who've been looking at this since the 1950s have come to the conclusion that it's a dumb idea. The problem is they haven't looked at it from other physics perspectives. Oh, and one little tease, it also contains within it the seeds of why Elon Musk appears to have gone off the rails when he suggests nuking the polar regions of Mars. So we'll get to all that in the third hour. So someone give, give us a call. Uh, I will I will give out the numbers. In fact, let me do that now. Uh, you might want to write this down. In the third hour, you want to call us at 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. And uh, that will allow you to reach the program. And if you have something pithy to say, we will be here to listen. Okay, let me give you a little background on Jim Goodall. And this is directly from the horse's mouth. Um, can you call a guest a horse? And Anyway, he says, I quote, How does a kid that grew up in what was once a very large apricot orchard in the middle of what is now Silicon Valley become an authority on Area 51? The blackbirds, that's the SR-71, and things that go bump in the night. Well, it's a simple three-part strategy. One. 
your dad came into your room, you're five years old, and says, I don't know what's coming, but we have to go see it. You go outside, and what is coming over the Coast Mountains? Not one, not two, but 24 Convair B-36s with all those multiple engines burning fuel at a ferocious rate and creating an extraordinary din. Two, you're now seven. Your best friend's dad is base commander at Moffett Field. You get locked in the cockpit of a Lockheed XF-104 that was in the big Hangar 1 after being tested in the NACA Ames wind tunnels, and you get locked in the cockpit because the SPS is needed to get you out. Three, you are TDY to Edwards Air Force Base a dozen or so years later. You're there to install and maintain ground-based telemetry for CAT-1 testing for three programs, two of which you know about, the other is still classified. It's March 10th, 1964, and you can see for the very first time a Lockheed Blackbird in full burner, and you are never the same. The kid was me, Jim Goodall. Jim, welcome to the other side. Jim, you're there. Am I on the air? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I lost the signal. Or... No, you're on the air and you're five by. Oh, oh, good. Cause that is a hell of a bio. I've got to say that is the most interesting bio I think I've read on the air in the several years I've been doing this. I mean, you got us on the edge of well, our seat. So where do you want to jump in? Yeah, when uh, when I when you, I was told this evening that you know later you know this evening that I needed a a short bio. You know, my resume wasn't uh, wasn't what you were looking for. Uh, we were you know, we had a, we had out to dinner with with friends and and I had to cut it short. And I'm thinking on the way home now, what can I write? Just a few <laughs> lines that sort of give me give me a foundation of where I'm coming from. Now, I'm this starts back in 1954. Uh, I'm uh, a very, I think a very young 74. I, I can't, I rode a Harley until seven, I was 72 and they gave it to my best friend and, and now I drive a Corvette. So I guess <laughs> uh, I like things to go fast. Oh, what, what year Corvette? What year? It's 2010 Grand Sport. Okay. And my license, my license plate is SR71. Do you know when I fell in love with Corvettes? Watching in 1953. Watching Route 66. Oh yes. yes oh my a, God. 62, 62 Corvette at the end. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I, I mean that, that idea I of the open road and having a Corvette under you and a limitless highway ahead of you. It just it just got me. I dro- I drove my car. To, I drove my vet to Minnesota two years ago. And Route 54 from Tucumcari to Wichita, it's just a big straight line. I got behind about 40 semis, and I pulled out, and I just hammered it. <laughs> and I led off. I was I, I was pushing 140, and it was and it was still going strong. All the trucks were honking the horn, flashing their lights, <laughs> and there's no place to, there's no place for a cop to hide. I mean, it's just you know the the road goes off to infinity. Wow. So. Uh, that reminds but, me of driving you know, you across 
driving across the deserts in Nevada or in, uh, um, here in New Mexico. I mean, the West is a perfect place to have a car like that. I live in Arizona. That's a good place, so too. close. <laughs> yep. So let's yep. begin at the beginning. How did Jim Goodall, kid of 15, raised in an apricot orchard, become one of the world's leading authorities on the most secret place in America, if not the world? Well, it, 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 it's because the Air Force and the Department of Defense and the CIA said no. In 1968, I had been out of the Air Force for two years. I, I was fascinated with the Blackbird. I saw it for a stand before the public saw it. I was fascinated by the place that it was tested at. But I wrote Air Force, Lockheed, Department of Defense, and CIA, and I requested, and I was willing to pay the published price for an 8x10 glossy, I gave what I was looking for. Their official police policy was not to cooperate. Now, were you, so a, were, you, co- were you a published author at the time? No, no. And I, ha- I hated to turn papers. I hated to write. I hated to do anything that had anything to do with books. Oh, my God. Uh, karma, karma. That's so ironic. That's what's so ironic about uh, me working on my 27th book. <laughs> I've had a tough time writing three or four. I don't, can't imagine 27. Je- uh, my longtime friend, he's, he's since passed away, uh, Jeff Ethel. He, was, uh, he, he, was, uh, he pushed me to write a book. He embarrassed me to write a book. He said, "Everybody, anybody wants any information on the Blackbird, they come to the Smithsonian and the Air Force Museum. Uh, Dave Menard back in the time and, and Jeff would say, well, get hold of Jim Goodall. He, you know, he knows more as much about it as anybody. And it's one thing led to another. And my first book wasn't on the Blackbird. My first book I did, I co-authored with Bill Sweetman on the F-117. Oh. And, and because, of, because of what I did on the F-117, uh, I made the front page of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> Not <laughs> bad. Tw- tw- Twice I've been on the front page, and my picture was below the below the the uh, fold on the last time. Mm. But it's it it is I don't know I, I if if the Air Force or, or Lockheed or the CIA or the Department of Defense would have given me what I requested in 1968, which wasn't classified then, <laughs> I would have been satisfied. I wouldn't be that pain in the butt. I spent most of my adult life in Minnesota, uh, or the Pacific Northwest, now Arizona. I would, I wouldn't be that pain in the butt. Mm. I'd be, you know, just some some guy who had you know who had five years in the service and he uh, got out, which I did. But I went back in the Air Guard ten years later. Um, I would have been happy. I would, I wouldn't have. Area Fifty One would have been the farthest thing from my mind. And then again, maybe not. But. Um, they, they're the ones who screwed up. They're the reasons I'm, I am who I am because of their official policy not to cooperate. <laughs> More karma. <laughs> right. Oh, when I did the 117 book, I was uh, shortly after it came out, I was activated for Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I go to the Pentagon and my, uh, my security, uh, my security uh, clearance is flagged. And the security specialist at Guard Bureau said, well, we can't issue a permanent Pentagon pass until this 
flag is removed. So I called the guy special projects. He, he was, I won't say his name cause he's still alive. And I, mean, I don't want to get any hate mail from him. That's kind. Uh, he was deputy director. He was deputy director for program security. His first name was Pete. <laughs> and I called him up. I said, Pete, this is Jim Goodall. You're screwing with my clearance. Oh no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Where are you at? He said, 5D 156. That's an old, that's the old address at there at the Pentagon. So I went up, I made an appointment to see him at, at uh, one o'clock. I go out down this hallway, long hallway, and there's one door with no name, just to, just the address, 5D156 above the door. I press the safe lock. The, someone buzzes the door open. It's a young lady behind the counter. I'm in uniform. And I said, I'm Jim Goodall. I'm here to see Pete. And her mouth about hit the desk. It'll be about 10 minutes. We sit down. And I had a parade of people coming through, and I can Yeah, you're breaking up a bit, uh, Jim. So I, I spent two hours with Pete, and basically, you know, if he said, he said when, I, when I got a copy of, of the, your F-117 uh, manuscript, I wanted to put you on active duty and charge you with es- espionage. <laughs> that was in the Air Guard, Minnesota Air Guard. So I threw I threw autographed copy of the book on the on the table. I said, Pete, there's exhibit one charge me. Well <laughs> we can do that. I said, Yeah, because you're full of baloney. I sent the manuscript to you and I sent it to Ben Rich. I said, if there's anything in there that, that you feel that I should remove. Jim, did we lose you? Oh my. This is going to be one of those nights, folks. I just want to uh, just want to warn you. I think we lost him. You beat Jim Goodall. Thanks for calling. Sorry, I missed your call. Uh, le- please leave your name and number, and I will get back to you as soon as I can. You take mm-hmm. care. Oh my 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 my! At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press one for more options. Keith, I need, think we need to recycle the count. Okay, let's try dialing him again. Okay. Um, this could happen several times. Now, we, we prep for this show because we had him there in Arizona in the desert sitting in the right chair in the right part of the room. So there's a good signal and he's on a, there. Ah, there you are. Yeah, I, I apologize. I, I think they're listening. <laughs> of course they're listening. Are you kidding? We, you have yeah, two of the most yeah. dangerous people on the same phone call on the air. In 190 yeah. countries, of course they're listening. So you threw yeah. the book down on his desk, and you see, I, when I was your age, I, um, anyway, we won't get into that. Go ahead. Yeah. So I said, charge me. It, well, it wouldn't be the best interest of, of the program. I said, Pete, since I sent you the manuscript, you did nothing with it. You could have come to a, a drill weekend when I, was, uh, when I was active. You could have given me a vanilla bland, know-nothing brief, classified brief on the 117, and I'd been screwed. But you're too stupid and arrogant to do something that makes sense. He's getting irritated. Hmm. And um, we went round and round, and after two hours, I was I was tired. He was extremely... I got up, and Pete's kind of short. I looked him right in the face, and I said, my nose is about six inches from him. I said, Pete, you know what 
drives you nuts about me? I said, what's that? I said, I'm not afraid of you. And I give him the raspberry. Go, <laughs> well, you know, you had him by the shorts because they document everything. All you'd have to do is to file an FOIA and the paper trail of you sending in the manuscript for them to approve would, would pop out. It'd be there. Yeah, well, they, did, they didn't do anything with it. They just ignored it. They figured I'd go away. Really? Yeah, they did absolutely nothing. Oh, because you were you were you were you were a brand new author. They didn't have any calibration on you. Well, yes and no, because when my before I wrote the book, my boss was at a general staff. I was the wing historian, so I either worked for the one star or the two star. Okay. And that was my chain of command, Jim Goodall and the boss. General Broman was at at a a general's conference in D.C. was a week-long thing, and uh, John Vesey was chairman, who's also from Minnesota. So somewhere in within this conference, my name came up, and General Broman uh, timed it. I was a subject. Now we're losing you again. You might want to shift position. Go ahead. And it does. Yeah, we're, at we're, joint, at chem- we're hearing at like every every chiefs. fifth word. Oh, sh- oh. <laughs> I, and <laughs> I haven't moved my head. Okay. Well, you might okay. want to move just a little bit because uh, I think we're on the fringes of some lobe or something, like side lobes. Is is, is this hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you now. No, nope. now you went away. Can you hear me? Yeah, now now we can hear you. You're going in and out. It's very weird. I'm not. I'm not. Hmm. No, you're you're really breaking up. We're not hearing anything. Yeah, they're having they're having fun and games. I mean, the, the signal was crystal clear this afternoon. So. Yeah. How is it now? Can you hear me? Yeah. Now we can hear you. Okay, uh, I just moved about about two inches. Um, but General John Vesey told my boss, he said, "Those of us at, at Joint Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, we refer to you, yours. We give your Sergeant Goodall a name. We refer to him as Agent Orange." <laughs> he said, "There's a there's a there's a, a, a bunch there's a number of our younger officers who would like to have him whacked." But the rest of us really enjoy what he does. Ah, now this this whole controversy was because you had published inside the system before as an historian, but this was your first public book, right? Correct, correct. That's where was, the trouble uh, came in. That's the whole yeah. friction because suddenly you would have a much bigger audience, and if you can write like you can talk people would pay attention and this was this super super secret deep deep black program that no one was supposed to know about and so yeah i can see why you ruffled feathers up and down the chain of command why well, I, I i was aware of it in uh 1978 before it flew mm. when it was called have blue or something no i didn't even know about have blue but all i knew all i knew it was uh, it was an attack aircraft with with an F designation. It was faceted, and it wasn't like anything you've ever seen before. A flying geometry was, puzzle. And it was like, 
it was like it was like a blind man describing an elephant. Oh. All the all the pieces were there, but they were in the wrong order. Okay. I'll tell you what, we're approaching the bottom of the hour here. So why don't we okay. why don't we cause a pause? Your your move seems to improve the the reception. And uh I, I really I apologize for that. No, 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 it's not your fault. I, it's yeah. it's them. We can blame them tonight. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is them. Okay. okay. Well, ju- hold hold it there. Yeah, hold I, it I, there. And yes, we are entertained tonight by someone who is absolutely fascinating to listen to. We're going to get a lot of backstory, a lot of stories that you have not heard about this mysterious area called Area 51. My guest tonight on the other side of midnight, James Goodall, author, historian, military aviation expert, and he knows a lot about this place called Area 51. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, August 25th, to the other side of midnight. My guest this morning for the entire show, Jim Goodall, who is probably the world's um, only living real expert in the intricacies (laughs) 
Well, given how much opposition you've had, you've had to become expert. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, let, right. let, us, let us pick it up. Uh, now, Now the, uh, the F-117 was tested at Edwards, and, and that has an extraordinary storied history. When did you first trip over Area 51 and its mysteries and secrets? Well, I've, I've had the – I don't know if it's a curse or an honor – to be a longtime friend of John Lear. Oh, I know John very well. And, and those who don't know who John Lear is, I can't imagine they don't, but <laughs> he's the son of William Lear, but he's also one of the foremost UFO guys out there. And because of John Lear, I met Bob Lazar. Ah. But the first, the first time that, I mean, I've known about Area 51 since probably the early 70s. I got my first look at Area 51 with John Lear in 1987. We, uh, we found a way to the top of Whitesides Mountain, and we spent a night up there. Uh, next morning, uh, we're up there uh, getting ready to shoot the place, which I did. I shot a, a whole series and linked, put them all together as a panoramic. And apparently they got a glint off my telephoto because <laughs> about 15 minutes later, I'm real hard of hearing. And John says, ah, the pavehawk's coming. That's what I mean. So we, we sort of sat behind a notch on the top of Whitesides. And these guys came right. They, were, they weren't more than 15 feet over the top, maybe 20 feet over the top of the mountain. And we're right at the peak. And there's some guy hanging out the door with, it looked like a, a 600 millimeter Nikon on a uh, you know, a strap you know strapped to him something sticking out, and we we just sort of sat there and waved at him like we were we were in the rose parade, and uh, <laughs> by then we knew we we knew that nothing was going to happen, so we came down off the mountain and they harassed us when we got down there and okay they if, could do if, it. we were in public lands. If people want to see this view, you go to the other side of midnight dot com, you click on um, uh, tonight's banner. The Area 51 banner for Sunday the 25th. That takes you to Jim's guest page. Scroll down and read you with pictures to Jim's items. Item number one is this spectacular, gorgeous panorama. Um, you're following along on the computer. That is Area 51 beyond those mountains in the foreground, right? Correct. Correct. That's a spectacular view. It was 17 degrees up there. <laughs> the wind was blowing about 25 knots. I stayed the whole night. Uh, John Andrews stayed the whole night, and so did Glenn Campbell, uh, Stu Brown, and and uh, Tom Luttrell, and Bob Gilliland, the first guy to fly the SR, joined us up there. And he walked. Uh, they all walked down off the mountain around midnight. <laughs> but we spent the whole night up there. Boy, it was cold. It oh, was bet. cold. Did you know it was going to be that uh, interesting before you went up there? I mean, in terms of temperature-wise and all oh, that? I, mean, I spent 27 years in Minnesota. I was going to say I you probably were. Time, yeah. I, spent a, I, I spent a lot of time out in the desert. I knew it was good. I was ready for it. Uh, the other guy, Stu, wasn't, and either was Tom. Now, were so you surprised? Down, down the mountain. Were you surprised back then that there were these glaring security holes? Because from up there with a really long lens or stabilized, gyro-stabilized, I mean, you can see a hell of a lot that you're not supposed to see. From, from the top of Whitesides, 
to the tower at Area 51 is 13 miles. Okay. That's not very. That's not very far. No. But, and the advantage it's to the east of the facility, and when the sun comes up, it's to your back. Ah. So it's, so you want to shoot in the morning. By the time the afternoon comes, uh, the, the heat uh, distortion that makes you know photos sure. pretty much worthless. Then Glenn Campbell and I. Oh, oh, oh well, hang on, hang on, hang on. These days, if you took a webcam. And like astronomers, amateur astronomers are getting stunning, you know, sub uh, hundred foot images of what's on the moon from the Earth through the atmosphere. You, you use yeah. a technique called image stacking. You can get with webcam. You do a streaming record. You get thousands of frames. The software picks the best frames, and you can probably see license plates in Area 51 with that kind of new technology. It's just, it's amazing. It is really is amazing. Um, but then, then we found Freedom Ridge and we were, they, they didn't, they still had unencrypted radios, the, the guards there at area 51. And as we're, as we're driving up, we, we had marked, marked the path to drive up to the top of Freedom Ridge by walking and then we got a four by four, and we went up, and and there was th- there was three vehicles, and I could we could hear the guards on the on on the un, unencrypted uh, frequency. So my God, said they're almost to the top. Oh, jeez, <laughs> this could be like a damn drive-in theater. What are we gonna do? <laughs> so when they when and they then, scoped out this area fifty-one, they didn't figure that anybody would climb these mountains that were on BLM land. Correct. Why? Correct. So, so for 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 eight years we had unfettered visible access to Area 51, but then then they had for the safety of the public they took away 4,000 acres, mm-hmm. all of Whitesides and Freedom Ridge. So they took away our vantage points, but that's that's. That's the price you pay. Now, now you just have to go do something else. <laughs> well, this was an now, era I, where they weren't even admitting that the place existed. They still don't. They really don't officially. They talk about it. They talk around it. A number of years ago, I think it was in I think it was in the late eighties. I know it was, I was in maybe the early nineties. They came out with a. It was an announcement from the Pentagon about a dry lake bed in a test facility uh, on Groom Dry Lake, and they spelled it all out. But it wasn't, it wasn't linked to anybody with a title. So I printed it out. I went to the base commander at Nellis and went to the secretary, and I said, can I, can I get this copied onto the general's stationery and have him sign it? <laughs> they asked me to leave the building. <laughs> they, they don't have any humor. I'm Apparently friends with not. those guys now, but uh, yeah. Okay, so I, I mean, the three hours is really going fast. So let's let's move along here. When was the first okay. time you got on Area 51? And parenthetically, in the public press, quickly connected with uh, Bob Lazar, uh, who I think I've talked to a couple times. Uh, there's the confusion in the public mind between Area 51, 
an area called S4, the Groom Lake. I mean, what? how do we separate all these, and where does the, the cool stuff happen? Okay, if uh, you, you, you're looking at an aerial view of Area 51, uh, and Area 51 is right next to Area 52 and, and just after Area 50, after Area 50, it got its name by the grid. I think there's section marks, uh, and it's it, it it goes from area one to area two hundred five, and it was to track fallout from above ground nuclear uh, detonations. Mm-hmm. And the, the the name has just stuck. It could have been area fifty two. It could have been area three, but it just <laughs> happened to be area fifty one. Now, is this on uh, U.S. Geological Survey maps or Bureau of Land Management maps? Not, there's, no, there's no official publication that I've seen <clears throat> that from the government, mm-hmm. uh, from the Air Force or DOD, that talks about that mentions Area 51. They'll, they'll, they can, I've heard them referred to as uh, Watertown Strip. Most of them refer to it as the test site. Um, Everybody, I, I've had a lot of real high-powered people that I email. I send out emails out at Skunkworks, and they all get a big kick out of my email because it's Area 51, and <laughs> that's how it started out. Um, and yeah, I'm, I, uh, I'm not on a first – maybe I'm on a first-name basis with the new vice president general manager there. He knows who I am. He has my black book book. Um, but they, but all the guys at the conference all got a big kick out of my my email because they really, even today, they're encouraged not to not to say the name because it, it it gives them it gives it credence or um, validates the fact that oh Area 51 really is a place and uh-huh. we've really been flying there since 1954 or 55. Well, they must be going through conniptions, as my grandmother would have said, over this latest social media thing, Facebook and Twitter. And oh. <laughs> I mean, they, I, they... – I go ahead. I have – yeah, I have been to the fence line at Area 51, both the northern fence line and the eastern fence line 50, 60 times in the last 40 years, 35 years. You don't – the signs say use of deadly force – Authorized now, no, nobody at Area 51, the Wackenhut security, the Air Force security, no one's going to cause an uh, could be an international incident. Oh my if, god, yeah, like, yeah, but you heard me at the top of the show compare it to Tiananmen Square. If in this latest oh, thing, it would it would cause such a convulsion politically around the world that they somebody, whoever did it, would get shot by their own own folks. I mean, no way is is anybody in danger. I mean, they're much more in danger from the conditions in that high desert, from running out of water or, you know, sunburn or whatever, or rattlesnakes or, you know, not from the Wackenhut folks. No, no. But what what they will probably employ, if any idiots are stupid enough to try to try to Run, you know, run the base. They'll use non-lethal crowd control equipment, microwaves, and sound. Mm-hmm. They'll they'll lay you down instantly with the with you know turning the microwave on. All of a sudden, you feel like you're on fire. It's not going to kill you, but it'll stop you in the tracks. 
And people say, well, they can't stop a million of us. Well, if they, if they were in a, if, if per se, someone decides to shoot somebody to stop it, and maybe there's a million coming and it's, you know, the, the, they can't let him on the base. All you have to do is shoot the guy in front. Mm. Everybody else is going to turn around and hightail. They don't want to be number two. But there's your incident. I mean, even using yeah. non-lethal force, if you have people rising on the ground with helicopters overhead shooting long telephoto lenses like out of Vegas or, or Los Angeles, it would be a political disaster for this administration. For the military in general, too. Yeah. I mean, it just yeah. – it's. If, if, and the other thing is, if you get arrested, you, you're in. You're in for a a wonderful two or three, four days. If they arrest you and you're in a vehicle, your car is going to be impounded by the police in in Pinoche, which is about a hundred miles from Area 51. You're going to have to find a way to get once they release you to get you to release you probably in Ash Springs or Alamo. You have to find a way to get from there to where your car is. It's going to cost you five hundred to a thousand dollars for the towing fee. Plus, you're going to have court costs. You're going to, I mean, it's it will be the worst week or ten days of your life. Just trying to just trying to untangle what what uh, what was caused by you deciding. Well, I'm going to drive into Area 51. Well, that's now, why I'm. I'm 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 kind of glad that the you know the organizers of this bizarre event have decided to make it a festival outside the gates and just have a mass of people showing up in the desert. So the worst thing we have to worry about is snake bites and you know um, sunburn and and lack of water. I I've, I've been in and around Tonopah Test Range, Area 51. Over 80 times total. I spent a lot of time at, at Tonopah. I was the first guy to shoot the one, the F-117, first mm. quasi-civilian. Um, I forget where I was going there. Well, I'll tell you what. Since we don't have a lot of time, let's let, let let's move on. When was the first time you got on base and got up close and personal to to a, a Blackbird? Uh yeah, this is about the 15th of March, 1964. I had uh, I saw it, I saw it on March 10th, but I was taking a shuttle flight to Hawthorne because I was a hitchhike down Laguna Beach to see my grandma's. It was Easter week, and I came. I had a couple, couple extra days off, and that following Monday, uh, I came into the uh, shop. I got a set of work orders, Lockheed hangar. And I walk into the Lockheed hangar, and I'm looking at the back of two Blackbirds, two YF-12 interceptors. Mm-hmm. Still there? Yeah. And I have never – I mean, it's, it's affected me the rest of my life. Hmm. It, it's, it's, it is it – was, it was just absolutely – it was absolutely amazing because the, on March 10th, we, when we got into the shuttle planes, I, I saw them running. They had just shut down the engine. They said, hey, we're loading. If you're going to this Piaggio, it's a gull-wing pusher-prop thing. We took off over Rogers Dry Lake, and we banked over so I could look down on the Blackbird. It was, the whole airplane was full. I think it was 12 people in there. And they were towing a C-130 right in front of it. They already shut it down. And I looked down and I saw a top view of this blackbird, and I could not. 
believe what I saw. <laughs> I mean, this was what? A couple of generations ahead of its time. So go back and pick up the story with the Lockheed Skunk Works. What is that for people that don't read history? Um, you know, a lot of people now don't read history. And then, and then how this amazing period. airplane came out of, of that uh, uh, aircraft shop. During, during the, near the end of World War II, uh, we were desperately in need of a jet aircraft to counter the ME-262 and the, uh, uh, I think it was a ME-163 Comet. That was a rocket-powered, the other one was a jet-powered. And two companies, Bell and Lockheed, vied, vying for the first contract. They built, they designed, built, and flew the XP-80 in less than, I think it was less than four months, four to five months. It was, it was a phenomenal time frame, and, and they did it in secret. And it, and it sort of became, it, it became a, a little specialized shop where Kelly Johnson was the boss. He put together the, the finest craftsmen and engineers and maintenance people that, that worked for Lockheed. And he, and he gave him full authority to get the job done. His he, his door was always open. Uh, they developed, you know, they developed the uh, the U two from signing the contract at first flight was 108 days. Oh my God! <laughs> the U two still flying today. When when the Blackbird first flew on April uh, 26, 1962, it had only been 15 years since. Chuck Yeager had done Mach 1 in a rocket-powered airplane. How many years? 15? From sign- 15. From signing a contract in 19 September 1959 to first flight in April 1962. It's 32 months. Okay. For folks that want to see what we're talking about, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner with uh, Area 51 prominently on it. That takes you to Jim's uh, guest page. Scroll down under his items and click on number two. That is a stunning photo of a blackbird under, I guess, afterburner with the shock diamonds at the edge of space. And that's a real picture. That's my, that's my picture. I took it. How the hell did you get that? No, I took it on the ground and tried to make photos. Oh, you Photoshopped it. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Very you did a good fun. job. Oh, you did a hell of a job, yeah. I worked on I worked on that particular airplane for fifteen years. And the picture right below it, number three, says Dave Russell, that's who I had sent it to. That's me moving a blackbird from Palmdale to Minnesota. I put it back together and, and when it was done it looked like uh, my business card up above. Hmm. Yeah, there's there are no air there's no air to air shots of an A twelve. That's an A twelve. That's a CIA airplane. Right. There's there are no there are no shots accessible to me or anybody else I know in the Blackbird community of any of the CIA A twelves with uh, giant shield uh, markings. Those the red tail markings, the red numbers, which they change every flight just to confuse the Russians. Hmm. Yeah, I would love to say that. Yeah, that was an air-to-air shot, but <laughs> but I uh, uh, 
but it's my favorite airplane, so I had I had to have it on my card. <laughs> well, tell everybody why it's such a special airplane. Because again, I said it's probably two generations ahead of where we would have been if it hadn't been created. I mean, it's made of exotic things. When it's fueled and cool, it leaks onto the runway. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. The the, the, air, the airplane, <clears throat> the skin is thirty thousandths, which is not very thick. The fuel cell, the fuel cells go from about the cockpit all the way back to the tail. It holds about ten thousand gallons U.S. gallons of fuel, and it burns that ten thousand gallons in you know probably about an hour and a half. Oh my God! But an hour and a half, you go about you go about thirty one hundred miles, and the the air during combat operations at Kadena d- during the war in Vietnam, the the airplane would. They had loaded up with 100,000 pounds of fuel's maximum. They'd loaded up with 60,000 pounds of fuel. And it leaked so bad, it was like someone was on top of the airplane with two garden hoses (laughs) going full blast. It would leak or consume 5,000 pounds of fuel, which is about 800 gallons of fuel before it took off. Now, tell everybody why. because that, that, that make any sense for, for civilians. They have no idea what we're talking about. Tell them why. Well, the, the, the environment is so extreme that a neoprene fuel cell like they have in most air, military aircraft today could not withstand going from minus 70 at 85,000 feet to uh, 700 or 800 degrees Fahrenheit due to friction. It would get brittle or crack or whatever. So those so use engines they, drive this thing through the upper atmosphere so fast that the skin temperature actually is hovering around what a thousand, and the leak into the interior makes the fuel and the and the bladder that contains it up to around seven eight hundred degrees. Yeah, what 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 happened is what, what happens is they they tr- they tried using fuel a uh, fuel bladder. But it, it would it would fail after two or three flights, so they went in and they use a water soluble gray clay. And if you live, I lived in Whidbey Island uh, for a bunch of years, and it's it's an island of glacial remnants. You find this glacial clay; it's slimy. Water can't penetrate. Okay, we lost you again. The J- There you are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's immune to the heat and the cold. This, this gray clay, and that's what they, that's what they use to seal it. And the airplane expect the airplane grows. I've heard people say, "Oh, it grows a foot. It grows this. It grows." I sat down with Tori Larson, who was a uh, he was a metallurgist for the Skunk Works, and I asked Tori, "Okay, how much does the SR seventy one grow from standard day to you know after twenty one minutes of flight, it's fully soaked as far as the heat." So he pulls out his little Bible of, of coefficient of expansion for metals, mm-hmm. goes down, does his, cal- does his calculation. An SR-71 grows in all dimensions, but it grows just under two inches in length. Oh, my God. And it seals everything up. Yet what is amazing is the engine, the Pratt & Whitney J-58, which is a Navy-derived engine, by the way. Right. Not an Air Force-derived engine. It grows two and a half inches in diameter and about six inches in length as it heats up. The whole air, everything about the airplane is phenomenal. 
and had to be invented from scratch. I was going to say, but to be invented in the 1960s is just, it's like magic. That's, that's what the skunk works can perform. They perform magic. Hmm. There's no, there's no other organization on the planet that can, that can match the Lockheed advanced development programs. A, also known as ADP, but in everybody knows it's the skunk works. It's <laughs> the Lockheed Martin skunk works. It's like everybody knows about Area 51 now by another name. Okay. Hey, right. look, uh, we only got about a couple of minutes before the break here at the top of the hour. Give people some statistics. What's it made of? How fast can it fly? How high can it fly? And how stable is she? Well, there are three manned Blackbirds, the A-12, which is CIA, the YF-12 Interceptor, and the SR-71, which was operated by the Air Force. They all fly the same maximum top speed, pretty much, Mach 3.24, which is about 2,100 miles an hour. Oh, my God. The A-12, the A-12 is four to 5,000 pounds lighter than the SR-71, the SR-71, the highest one that's ever flown, was during flight test, it was about 87,200 feet. Uh, Bill Park took an A-12 to 96,200 feet. Uh, 931, uh, which was my, which the airplane that I acquired from the Minnesota Air Guard that I worked on, uh, it flew at 92,500 feet straight and level. The fastest an SR-71 has ever flown, it was 974, which was Ichiban. It was the best flying and the last one to crash. During flight test, Bill Weaver took it to Mach 3.43, which is 2320, something Mm. like that, 2300 miles an hour. This is an airplane that was designed with slide rolls. Harry Combs, who who was one of the inlet specialists, Ben Rich told me, said, he's our best inlet guy he can visualize airflow and i don't think he graduated from high school i th- he said i think he went he think he made it through the ninth grade when he had to drop out oh during the depression God. yeah wow. you were hired at lockheed not because you had credentials we had you were hired at skunkers because you had abilities okay but hold it there we're at the top of the hour sure. my guest this morning is jim goodall we're just he's describing this amazing science fiction type aircraft that was built by the legendary Lockheed Skunk Works back in the 1960s, flying at thousands of miles per hour, crossing the continent in record-breaking time in space, 96,000 feet. I mean, you're in space. And it was all done, as he just said, with slide rules. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. <laughs> 